Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from James Jordan in our little series on the New Covenant, and here he has a lecture for us titled, From Land to City. Do remember that we do have two online workshops coming up, one on the Book of Judges with James B. John and James Jordan, and the other on the Maker versus the Takers with Jerry Boyer. You can find more information and registration in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you are sharpened and enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan in a talk titled, From Land to City. The change from land to city as we talk about covenant changes, okay? And so that's the purpose of this lecture here, is to set some of this material out. In the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, remember the Bible does not divide itself into Old and New Testament, it's just the scriptures. It's from a musical standpoint, one through composed uh, piece of music sung by the Spirit. As the second person of the Trinity is the Word of God, so the third person of the Trinity is the music of God because He is the breath, He's what makes the sounds out loud. And as soon as you say something out loud, you make music because your voice goes up and down and loud and soft and fast and slow and has all these other characteristics of music. This body is the fundamental musical instrument. It has percussion in your mouth, it has a string, and it has wind. And you simply extend that into the three kinds of musical instruments. And so the Bible is written with these repeated melodies and themes. And we have a lot of theologians uh, who are deaf to this, but what in reality, this is what typology is. Typology is the ability to hear the same melodies repeated over and over again in the Bible. Uh, sometimes fast, sometimes slow, sometimes extended. But there are these patterns, and we notice the shifts in these patterns. That uh, the tabernacle is like the temple is like the tabernacle, and yet it's different. Uh, Ezekiel's temple is like Solomon's temple, and yet it's different. And so the the ability to hear these repeated melodies, to hear the same story, Exodus story, over again, when Abraham comes up out of Egypt, when Abraham comes out of Philistia, when Jacob comes back uh, from Paddan Aram, when Israel comes out of Egypt, when the ark comes back from Philistia, when Jesus comes back from the cross. That's the same story. It always has the same shape. It always has the same melody underneath it. But we want to look at shifts in imagery, and by cutting the Bible in half, and by having departments of New Testament and departments of Old Testament, and Vedas Testamentum, and Novum Testamentum, and Zeitschrift für die Alttestamentliche Wissenschaft, and Zeitschrift für die Neutestamentliche Wissenschaft, and Journal of Old Testament Studies, and Journal of New Testament Studies, all kinds of stuff doesn't get noticed. Like, for instance, that there are no sheep in the New Testament, and there are no fish in the Old Testament. Where do you ever see anybody eating fish in the Old Testament? Jonah was eaten by the fish. Jonah didn't eat a fish. What do you think he ate for three days? I think he was hungry. In fact, he was in deep sleep. He was in a comatose state when he was inside there. That's what it says. All right? Where do you see anybody eating sheep in the New Testament? How many of Jesus' disciples were shepherds? How many Old Testament prophets were fishermen? How many of you ever noticed it before? Because I told you. How many of you have never noticed that before? How come you never noticed that? All right, see? No, some people notice it, but we don't tend to notice it. You know, there's shepherds at Jesus' birth, and that's kind of it. <laughs> that's the last we see of any shepherds. It's all fish. It's all Gentiles. Okay? 153 big fish, nations, the number 17 multiplied uh, by itself, 153, or, no, that's not right, uh, 17 triangulated is uh, uh, the number of fish. Well, another shift is from land to city. In the Old Testament, the prophets sent letters to various lands and countries, but Paul sends letters to cities. He doesn't send letters to any countries. Except the letter to the Hebrews, of course. All right. Countries. In the Old Testament, the countries are reached by land. The cities, oddly enough, are reached by sea. 
Jonah, although he doesn't go by sea to Nineveh, he tries to escape going there by sea, and he spends time on the water. But Paul, who is a new Jonah, and by the way, the sign of Jonah, which is the only sign, is certainly repeated in the book of Acts at the shipwreck at the end of the book. Paul, who is a new Jonah, uh, travels to cities, and he always travels over water to get there. It's always, he's always on boats getting to these various parts of the Oikumene. We're on the sea. The shifts in imagery take place. And I want to talk in this hour about the shift from land to city. The first thing I, we need to say is the city is a fact. The city isn't something, the potential. The city is not something we make. God didn't say, I want you to make a city now. Any more than he went to Israel and said, I want you to make a land. He said, I'm giving you this land. It's already all fixed up. I'm going to drive, I'm going to send bees and hornets in, and they'll drive people out. They didn't have screen doors back then. A bunch of bees go through the city, and there's nothing you can do but run and get underwater somewhere. Okay? And the whole city's left, nice and empty. Wells and cisterns that you didn't dig, nice empty cities, food still on the table, <laughs> refrigerators full of food, and a bunch of dead bees on the floor. And meanwhile, the people have all run away. All right? He just gives them this land. And the city is given. It comes out of heaven. It's bestowed. It's, in a sense, built by Jesus and put here. And it's a fact. It's a fact whether people like it or not. I'm going to argue that here. And now to answer Burke's question last night. In the Old Testament, we move from ox to lion to eagle man. To, to man. The ox is the sacrifice that the high priest brings when he sins, the ox is priestly. He plods along, looking at the ground, and does exactly what he's told. That's what a priest is. A priest does what he's told. A priest is under law. The lion is the king. All the lion imagery is kingly in the Old Testament, and the lion bounds along a lot faster than an ox. He has a whole lot more dominion than an ox does, and he doesn't do what he's told. He's kind of in charge. The eagle comes next in the Old Testament, and eagles are prophets. They soar above, and above everything else is man. And these are the order of the cherubim. They're the order of the Gospels, even though our churches have the wrong imagery here. Matthew, as we've said here before, but we'll repeat it, Matthew focuses on Jesus as priest. In Matthew, Jesus is Moses. He gives these sermons. He goes down to Egypt, and he comes out. Matthew does more than that, but there's a mosaic focus Mark is kingly. In Mark, Jesus is the man of action, doing stuff by his hands. The miracles that are done without any hands in the other Gospels, in Mark, Jesus uses his hand to do them. The first thing he does in Mark is heal a guy's hand. Luke is the Gospel of the foot. Luke moves out. The first healing in the book of Acts is to heal a guy's foot, a lame man, so that he can travel. Because in Luke, you're traveling. And the Gospel of Luke shows Jesus as prophet and has an oikumene context. Starts off by telling us Quirinius was governor of Judea and Tiberias, all this other stuff. Gabriel, the angel of the oikumene, shows up. And uh, uh, everything is traveling in Luke. In Luke, Jesus is prophet and eagle. And then in John, Jesus is the new form of things. He's the man. Well, we move from land to Israel to the Oikumene and to the city in this progression throughout the history of the Old Testament. The new age is the city age. The age just before it, the prophetic age, is the time of empire or Oikumene. Before that is the land of Israel, and before that where we have a king, before that is priest. Now I'm going to suggest, and we'll try to argue tomorrow, that Jesus' earthly life before his resurrection shows him as priest. That in Acts 1-12, to Jesus is king of the Jews. That he, divide, he apportions to the twelve apostles to govern the twelve tribes of Israel, just as he said. And that happens in Acts chapters 2-12. to That the apostles go around the original land and they conquer it and apportion it in the New Testament way. And then Jesus becomes, is presented as the world emperor in, or the Oikumene emperor in the second half of Luke, where Paul travels throughout this area and brings them up under Jesus' reign. 
And that's finished when Paul goes to Rome. And then after A.D. 70, we have the city. In the presentation of the book of Revelation, the city appears in A.D. 70. It comes out of heaven now ready. The bride is made ready during the 40 years between 30 and 70. The bride undergoes death and resurrection in the great tribulation. And then the bride is ready. And in a sense, the city actually comes at that point. And John is connected with that, as I'll argue. So, Burke, I think that's the progression, wherever you are. You know, I think that works out. And I think we haven't seen it because we haven't read the New Testament in a progressive way looking at uh, this. We haven't read it preteristically. That's the bottom line. Okay. Uh, the Vossians, after Pentecost, it's just kind of everything's the same. And then Jesus eventually comes back at the end. And all those passages about a near coming and uh, he's near right at the door, that's just kind of he's always near. And he's coming on this generation, well, it's always this generation. And all those, those time verses are eternalized. They're Gnosticized. <laughs> but we don't do that. We're not Gnostics around here. May it never be. Yeah. I mean, Voss is great. But when but Voss tends to not see the New Testament. He doesn't see the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 as, as the, the final and culminative act of the first coming of Jesus. That's a tendency just to see that as, well, that just kind of had, had to happen, rather than seeing it as a really important redemptive historical event. But it is. Okay, now the city... This shift from land to city is not some mere symbol. It's a real cultural phenomenon, and that's what I want us to talk about for a minute. A city is a cosmopolitan place, and it's a place where you have foreigners. You don't have foreigners out in the countryside. Now, in America, we don't understand that very well, because a bunch of people from Sweden come, and they live in Nebraska, and a bunch of people from Russia come, and they live here, and a bunch of people from Mexico come, and they form little communities around, and we have Vietnamese communities in Houston and other places. But anywhere else in the world, out in the countryside, you don't have foreigners. But in the cities, you do. They don't have to be a Hanseatic League city. They can be any city. Foreigners will be in the city. You'll have smells of different kinds of food in the city. Out in the countryside, it's, you know, haggis every day. But in the city, you might have curry, you know. Anything but haggis. And in the Old Covenant, this is also true. If we look at the law, which we're not going to take the time to do, but you can do, you find the cities are for foreigners. Why? Because the land was all divided up into the families of Israel, and if you were a foreigner and you, can, and you became a God-fearer and you wanted to live in the land of Israel, there was no land you could have. Now Leviticus 25 says that you could maybe rent land for a certain number of years or lease it, but in the year of Jubilee it will pop right back to its original... Well. In the year of Jubilee, it will go back to God. He will own all the land, and the next year it will go back to the people he originally gave it to after the conquest. And so the foreigners live in the cities. If you're circumcised as a Jew, you have to be adopted into a family so that you can be a Jew and be part of the land society and inherit land. Otherwise, you live in the city. And the book of Numbers tells you about the city. It tells you that there's a... You draw a line 1,000 cubits out from the edge of any walled city, and that's city space, and you can grow crops in that area. All the rules are given, okay, for the distinction between land and city. Cities are slightly more holy. If you get green spots or red spots, Christmassy spots, that leprosy Christmas garbage, on the walls of your house, and you live out on the land, it doesn't mean a thing. But if you live inside of a city and you get leprosy on the walls of your house, something's got to be done about it. Because the city is a slightly more holy environment than the land in the degrees of holiness system. That's where foreigners live. And it's a dangerous place for that reason. That's why Deuteronomy 13 says, if in one of your cities some sons of Belial try to seduce you Israelites into worshiping other gods, this is what you do about it. 
Why? Because it's in the cities that the foreigners are found. The Muslims might be in the cities trying to build a mosque. And if you let them do it, we've got to kill you. All right? That's what it says. You're not going to have Muslims building mosques out in the countryside, see. But in the cities, the stranger might come in and try to build his shrine to his god and say, come on over here, let's worship these other gods. You know, in our religion, we have sacred prostitutes. That's a whole lot more fun than in your religion. Well, that's attractive to certain young men. The city anticipates the new creation already in the Old Testament. As I say, it's not under the Jubilee. Those Jubilee land laws, which were just in connection with the land that God gave to Israel, they don't apply in the city. You can buy and sell land in the city permanently. Land does not revert in the city. It's like the new covenant. The city we see in Jerusalem itself is uh, already becoming this new place. I've got down here, old Jerusalem. Why? Because in the, in the city... We begin to have the uh, in Jerusalem. We begin to have characteristics of the city. So turn the page, and I'll make the point that city life is not under the elementary principles. The elementary principles are when we were children and angels were teaching us, and we were under the sergeants. Remember, we were officer cadets destined to become lieutenants and captains. But in the Old Testament, we were at basic training summer camp, and the sergeants were in charge. And the angels were the sergeants. And Satan decided that he didn't want us to graduate and become over him as officers. But good angels are just like good sergeants. They beat you up for two months, And then at the end, when you get your lieutenant bars pinned on you, the sergeant is proud as a peacock at how you've grown up, and he delights to salute you. You don't have to salute him anymore. You don't have to salute the water fountain anymore uh, and ask permission for a drink. Now the sergeant who used to beat you up, he salutes you. See, that's the history of the world. But when we were children, when we were under the law, and it was not different from being a slave, We were under the angels. And by the way, the Old Testament covenants were not suzerain treaties where God was the king and we were the slave. Okay? Before Yahweh ever made himself king, he said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The covenants are always father-son covenants. But because a child is like a slave, that father-son covenant looks like a king-vassal or a king-slave treaty, but it's not. Okay? It's a father-son covenant to start with. That's what's most basic. The Trinitarian relationship of father and son is most basic in the covenant that God has with us all along. In a sense, we were never slaves. We were children. Well, in a sense. All right. The city life is not under the elementary principles. The angels instructed us using stars and animals. You can just, you know, teach your children. In the Old Testament, angels were teaching us using stars and animals. We were to learn all kinds of things from animals. Adam was to learn from animals. We worshipped by bringing animals. Animals carried us all the way to heaven in the Old Testament. (coughs) We'd lean our hand on an animal. And then it would go to the altar, and it would send up to heaven, and the animal would carry us with it. And that was how we got there. Animals were taking care of us. We were to look at animals and learn from them in the book of Proverbs. The faces of the cherubim in the Old Testament were ox, lion, and eagle. This is the animal time. Not that we were animals, but that we were learning from them, because animals are first in the world. Over the millions of years, animals came first. No, that's not right. But animals were made on the fifth day and on the first half of the sixth day before we were, and animals precede people in the world. How do you know where the good water is and the bad water is? You follow the animal trail and it leads you to the good water. Why? Because animals multiply faster than people do, and so animals spread over the world faster than people do, and animals discover what's good to eat and where the water is before people do, and so people follow the animal trails. 
they learn from animals what to eat and what not to eat. And then you, you have your animal trail that leads down to the good water. Then human beings come and they walk it and it becomes improved. And then they put gravel down on it and then they pave it and then they four-lane it. But way back when, it was an animal trail. Because animals kind of went around the world first. We learn from them. Not anymore. We're supposed to have outgrown that, and we have. In Jesus, the model is now a human being. He goes first, and we follow his path. But when we were children, we had kitties and dogs, and you used to, you know, look at the back of the comic book and mail in for a little monkey to be sent to you. Any of you guys old enough to remember that? You know, on the back cover, it was, hey, skinny, Charles Atlas. But on the inside back cover, you could send in for a little monkey or a little dog to be mailed to you through that. Or you used to let little colored chickens that they would get you at Easter. What horrible stuff went on in the 1950s. Everybody got these little colored pink and blue chickens. And what'd they do with them? You know, they're all dead in a month. <laughs> oh, that's, you can't get by with that stuff anymore. <laughs> well, children like animals. Animals like children. We have cats. We have little kids come around. The cats go, they're much friendlier to them than they are to adults. And the angels taught us using stars. How do you know when to worship? Well... You have to watch the sun. You have to watch the stars. You get the vernal equinox. Then you watch the moon. You get the first new moon, the dark moon. You count 14 days, and that tells you when Passover is. The sky, those clocks in the firmament, they tell you when to worship. Okay, But in the city. And the almanac tells you when to plant, when to harvest. That has to do with the sun, the moon, the seasons of the year. You live with animals out on the farm, but in the city you don't. You don't live with animals in the city. You have to live with other people. Okay, you have to get along with other people. And you don't live by the almanac. The city has a different calendar. Because you're not planting crops in the city. You're dependent on those who do. The city is built on the land. But you are not living under the elementary principles in the city, even in Jerusalem. You weren't. You were already, in a way, moving out from under it. In the city, you have a division of labor. If you're on the farm, you do everything. You grow the chick, you grow the plot, crops, you have your vegetable garden, you have your chickens, the kids go out and they get the eggs from under the chicken, you milk the cow, you make your own clothes, you bake your own bread. You may not shoe your own horses as a guy down the street who does that, but pretty much you do everything, okay? If it's got to be done, you do it. If you're a farmer, you're a jack-of-all-trades. And your kids, hey, it's good to have a bunch of kids. Let's have eight or ten kids, you know, because eight or ten kids, as soon as they're five or six, they can help out. They can milk the cow. They can get the eggs out from under the chicken. They can pull weeds up from around the plants. They're useful. And how much education does it take to do that? Not a whole lot. You're going to get educated by hanging around your mom and dad and learning how to sweep and learning how to make soap. And do you need to learn to read and write? Nah, you got some scribe in town who does that for you. You may need to make marks and count and do a little bookkeeping, but you don't have to learn to read and write. Education, you don't need much education to be very effective on the land. But in the city, ah, it's different. Okay, In the city, you have division of labor. You gotta have some people to maintain the sewage in the city or you're in trouble. You gotta have some people whose job it is to get the water to come into the city or you're in trouble. You have to have people who manage the bazaar and have food brought into the city or if you're in trouble. You have to have a division of labor, people specializing in different kinds of things in the city. And because of the way the city functions, you get high culture as opposed to folk art. You can't have an orchestra or a chorus among the farms because people are too distant from each other. And before automobiles, which is a city thing, it took a while for people to get together. So you have folk art. Two or three people get together and they fiddle and they play the mandolin and a few other things. You know, they make their own quilts or something. Folk arts, but you don't have what we call high art, which is more complex, where one person with a particular gift writes music, 
It is very complicated for a bunch of different instruments, several melodies going at once, several movements long, requires 50 or 80 different people to perform. You have to have a city for that. Jerusalem, you have that. So when, you, when the society develops to the point where you have Jerusalem, then you can have a glorified tabernacle worship in the temple form, or you can have a temple orchestra, and you can have a temple choir. And you can have greater complexity. And if you look at some of the Psalms, you find that some of the Psalms, um, I'm ashamed of myself, but I am... Well, I'm trying to remember the Psalm that... um, Oh, I know what it is. Psalm 118 uh, calls on all these different groups of people to praise God. House of Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. House of Aaron say, priests, and the God-fearers, you who fear God, the Gentiles who are there, say his loving kindness is everlasting. And there are other Psalms where it's obvious you've got different groups of people saying things. Okay? It's almost like a cantata, the way they're written. We don't do them that way in church. We read them responsibly. But if you look at them in your Bach, you can see that there are different groups of people saying things and you could assign, and they're practically like what we think of as a cantata. Okay, You, you just don't have that on the land. You have to have a city for that. Out on the land, you have a barter economy. Hey, you know, I just my, my hens aren't laying. I need some eggs. Well... That's okay. You know, your wife is real good at making clothes. If she could maybe make some clothes for my baby, I'll supply you with eggs. It's just a barter economy. In a city, uh uh-uh. You need money. In a city, you develop a money economy. What kind of world do we live in now? Barter or money? We live in a city. Everywhere. The whole world is city now. But it's taken a while to get there. Now, the new creation happens whether people like it or not. When the new creation happened, the world changed. The Jews did not want the new creation to happen, but guess what? It happened, and they didn't have any choice about it. Who is it that's lived in cities more than anybody else for the last 2,000 years? Jews. Why? Because they haven't had any land. Who is it who developed the banking economy and has done more to develop the money economy than anybody else? Jews, because they haven't had any land. So they were forced into the new creation. They didn't want to be there. Do they get to have sacrifices? No. They don't get to have any animal sacrifices. They had to completely change the law. They had to change the Feast of Passover into a family meal. Christians all think that Passover was originally a family meal where everybody got together as families. No, it never was. Even the first time the Passover was done in Exodus 12, it says if your household is too small for a lamb, you get together with the people who live next door. You don't find your cousin across town. You get together with the people next door. And every time after that, it was done at the tabernacle, and it was the Levites who took the portions out of the people and the priests who sacrificed the animals. It was never a family meal, ever, until after AD 70, and the Jews had to figure out how to do things a new way because they didn't have a temple and they didn't have any animal sacrifices. So that's the end of the animal centricity of the Jews. They were forced into the new covenant, into the new creation. They're still gnawing their teeth and not really wanting to be there. Okay? Except those that convert. But they're there, whether they like it or not. And the same is true on missions. Missionaries go to Africa or some other place. And of course, this was true in early modern Europe, except we don't have as many stories to go on. But I've had missionary tell me, he said, you know, when I when I was in Africa, I forget where he was, uh, Senegal, I think. And he said, the priest told me, uh, the the chief told me, he said, before you came, I could go, if there was a problem, if there was a child missing, I could go sleep in the cave, the special cave, and I could ask my sacred stone, and the stone would move, and I I would see in the night where the child was. But he said, Since you came and brought the gospel, none of that happens anymore. 
Well, if that's real, I don't know why we would question that. Okay? When, when we were children, angels helped us out. How does how the angels and the demon things work in the pre-Christian world? I don't know, and I don't need to know, because my job is to take the gospel and replace that. God knows how it worked. But you have stories from all over the world about how the spirits used to help us out. We know when we first moved here, the spirits met us and showed us how to heal this and what things to eat and what not to eat. Why should we doubt that? The Bible tells us angels help people out in the beginning times when we were children. Now, the new creation comes, whether people like it or not. You see, the Africans, all those religions were shattered. There's an attempt to revive paganism. It doesn't really work. You wind up with communism. You wind up with some counterfeit humanism. Christianity is a true humanism. It replaces animalism. It replaces the elementary principles. And you either wind up with true humanism in Christ or counterfeit humanism and ideology. But you can't go back. It's like the New Age. You know, Christians were all upset about the New Age. Oh, return to paganism. Nah. Pagans are terrified of their gods. New Age is just humanism with a little color and flavor added on top. You know, this is just for fun. It's just playing games. It's playing with paganism. But there's no fear. There's no dread. Nobody's saying, oh, we don't dare eat certain foods on certain days. No. Nobody has taboos. New Age stuff, that's just playing games. It's secular humanism with frosting on it. Okay? That's why it's, that doesn't really last or have any impact. You can't go back. Okay? When Jesus brings the new creation, it happens. And it happened in Israel in the, 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 the 40 years from AD 30 to 70 are a type of everything that's going to happen in all the other nations of the world over the next several thousand years when the gospel comes to a place. Okay, first it comes on a white horse and it conquers. Then it comes on a red horse and people are set opposed to each other. Father against daughter, mother against son, just like Jesus says. Then it comes on a black horse and all the old things are starved out. The bread, but the new things, the wine and the oil, they're protected. Then it comes on a Levitical green horse and it kills off the old ways. And now the old ways are gone and people either have to continue in Christ or become into some counterfeit Christ, anti-Christ, but they cannot go back to where things were before. And that happens every time. The new creation happens. And essentially what it brings is city, where people have to learn to live with each other because they can't avoid it anymore. Now over the last 2,000 years, this has happened in the world. This is just becoming manifest. Technology and citification are over all of life today. The city becomes manifest over time, and I've written this down so that you have it. The Bible is truth, and it is given to exorcise us and to demythologize us. According to Romans 1, our heads are full of myths, and the Bible is to purge out all mythic thinking. There are no myths in the Bible, and the Bible never uses mythic language and mythic categories. It has its own chronology. It's pure history. And it exorcises us from uh, demonic thinking and it demythologizes us of wrong understandings of the history of the world. Regardless of what the neo-evangelicals say. And as the gods are sucked out of human fears by exorcism, and as the world is demythologized, technology results. This is just as old as the hills to talk about how Christianity sucks the gods out of the world and out of human consciousness, and the result is people can take dominion over the world. Technology is the result. <coughs> technology is the extension of human beings as governors and transformers of the world. Technology enhances our hands, it enhances our feet, whether it's a velocipede or a bicycle or an automobile, or a boat, or a jet plane, it enhances our feet, and our hands are enhanced with, and our ears are enhanced with 
uh, communications. Technology does that. Human beings are extended by this, and we're no longer afraid to do it. And so today in the United States, nobody is under bondage to the world to be a farmer. In the old days when we were slaves and children, if you didn't farm, you died. You better have some crops. Or if you live in a city, you better make sure that the communications are good because it's real risky. And if there aren't rains, you better pray for those early and latter rains because if they don't come, you're in deep trouble. Because the world is small and you have to have your stuff, okay, and you're bound to it. You can't go on vacation because if you go on vacation, your cows will dry up and then you won't have any milk when you get home. Okay? You are enslaved to the land. Whether you're a serf or a peon or whatever you are, you are bound to the land. But now, you want, you want to have some goats? That's your choice. Or not. You know? We can kind of play at it. Any return to the land today is voluntary. And even if you are a farmer, chances are you've got 10,000 acres and a bunch of machines that take care of it, and you can go to Europe for a month. Uh, you've got other people who work for you. The whole world has become cityfied. Farming is cityfied. And if you want to have some gar a garden in your backyard or something, that's for fun. Okay? Nothing wrong with it. Maybe it's a great kind of fun. Maybe it's better to go out and exercise yourself digging in your garden than to just join a health club and do it that way. Uh, but still, it's a choice, okay? It's not bondage. Because all the world is city now. Even in deepest, darkest, wherever, people have cell phones, internet access, and radio and television. You have the same kind of music all over the world. And this changes everything. Folk music largely disappeared, replaced by commercial music that comes over the radio. Much worse music, okay? We could talk about that at length, but I think the point's obvious. The world is becoming city. It's changing over. A money economy is everywhere. Globalism. Whatever you want to call it. It's a universal, increasingly universal, noosphere, <laughs> there's an old word, of, uh, of this situation, okay? It's taken 2,000 years, but is largely manifested now. There aren't many places where the gospel hasn't gone initially. Now, Jesus said to disciple the nations, and so it's going to be a long time before that's finished up. But the initial impact has happened. I, what does that mean for us since, since we live now? Okay, what does it mean in terms of using confessions of faith that were written 500 years ago and still what was largely an agrarian society, very different from ours? What kinds of questions and modes of thought are in front of us that were not in front of them, that require us to think again over the same issues? Not to change the fundamental facts, but maybe to change how they're expressed. We're not allowed to think about those things according to some, but we have to, or else we just wind up being little sects over here on the side, and other people will think about it. Now, nobody likes this. We have the rebellion of the old against the new. We had it in the first century. We have it right now in the PCA and the OPC, if I might be so bold. You see it uh, in this form, here on the city form, by people saying country life is better. Well, is it? You know, how much incest is there in country life? I mean, this country life isn't necessarily any better than city life. It's just different. But you had in the 20th century, and I think that this is important. I think that since we are right on the cusp of sort of the cityfication of the world, you had a big reaction against that in the 20th century in Europe. Culture versus civilization. And of course, the cosmopolitans were mainly Jews because they were the city people. They were different, okay? But in Germany, in Austria, and in lots of other places, Romania, you had these folk movements which said land and blood, okay? And this was a re re reaction against city 
and city life. Of course, you can't avoid it. You know, when you're using Wagner and you're putting on gigantic uh, operatic displays uh, with masses of people uh, together in squares, waving flags and things, you've actually got city stuff going on. But what you're trying to do is go back to blood and land and providing an agrarian ideal of folk and saying a pure race. That's a reaction against what Jesus has done. And what Jesus has done can't be stopped. And those reactions just fizzled out. Even if World War II hadn't happened, it would have fizzled out because it can't work. The world is mixed and cosmopolitan. And in a sense, the United States of America, like it or not, is on the cusp, is on the forefront of that. We are the pioneers. We are the place where there are more different kinds of people in one place. So these issues are worked out more here than anywhere else. That's not a pat on our back. It's just what Jesus has put in front of us as people who live in the United States. Okay? But in Europe, they tried to stop it. Now they've got it in spades. You know, they didn't want the Jews, so now they've got Muslims. <laughs> Pretty stupid exchange. Uh, and at the same time, in this country, you had a neo-pagan movement among academics called agrarianism. A bunch of guys sitting in universities who would never, who didn't know anything about animals, but wrote all kinds of books about how good it is for ordinary peasant-type people to live down on the farm and work with their hands on the soil, and how that disciples people. People are discipled by being enslaved to the soil and working with animals. Well, no, they're not. Not any better in any other way. And it's nice to be, you know, sit at Vanderbilt University and write about how it's good for Negroes and poor whites to live that way, uh, when you yourself would never do it. But this was a, a belief in natural law, that nature disciples people. Nature doesn't disciple people. The Holy Spirit disciples people. The elementary principles in the Old Covenant did not mean that nature was discipling people. It meant that angels and spirits were using nature to, to disciple people. There was never any natural law coming up from below. So that has failed, although it still hangs around in some Christian circles, in familism and other things. This is just the cultural form of the Galatian heresy. Galatians 4, 8 to 11. We should read a little bit of Bible here anyway. This is supposed to be a Bible conference, but, you know, I just... Let's just remind ourselves of the way... The Holy Spirit puts it here in Galatians 4, 8 to 11. At that time when you, he's writing now to the, the Gentiles in the congregation, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, chosen by God, how is it that you turn back to weak and worthless elementary things? Now he uses this elementary principles for both the Jewish law, which was the true form of the angelic discipleship of children, and for the pagans, where you have a kind of mixed up and confused form of angelic and demonic and uh, discipleship. But it's all the elementary things. It's archaic religion. That's the word that Mircea Eliade and students of religion call it, the archaic form of religion, all right? Connected into the world. You want to turn back to these things, and he can say the same thing to the Jews. You desire to be enslaved. You observe days and months and seasons and years. <clears throat> okay? We don't. If we want to have a church calendar, that's our choice. Angels don't impose it on us. Well, when did this church calendar get imposed on people? When? No. Before that. When, when did the, the calendar, was the calendar imposed by the angels on the world for festivals? Moses, the fourth day of creation, yes. The sun and moon and stars were set up for signs and for festival times, Moedim, okay? So if that's gone, if that's replaced, there's an aspect of 
even the original creation order that's changed. We're in a new creation. That's why it's so radical. Okay. So it goes all the way back. I fear for you that I have labored over you in vain. And you see, we don't want to thin this out and say, this only refers to liturgical matters or to some theological concepts about elementary things. This is the total life thing. Okay. You are supposed to be in charge of your own calendar now. The church is in the calendar. Paul says in Romans, I don't have this down, so I'm going to have to find it here. Yes, Romans 3, 2, 2 and 3. Romans 3, verse 20. Four, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed as a covering on the ark in His blood through faith. That word is translated propitiation here, but that's, that's a mistake. It is a propitiation, but that's not the fundamental idea here. It's the covering on the ark. So let me show you what Paul is saying here. He is saying, uh, you have the ark of the covenant, which is a box... And then on top of that, you have a slab. You have a slab of gold with cherubim on it. Okay? And their wings extended. They look down. Alright? That's in the most holy place. According to Exodus 25, this slab represents the firmament between heaven and earth. On the day of atonement, on the day of covering, blood is put on that covering. So that when God, who is enthroned above here, looks down on humanity, he sees it through this blood. Now he says, Jesus Christ is now that place. Jesus is now the firmament between heaven and earth. His blood is here, and when the Father looks at the human race, he sees the world through the blood of Jesus, and his wrath is propitiated. But that means when you look up at the sky... Jesus is there. He's the place in between heaven and earth. He's the new firmament in his blood. And every single human being that's living on the earth right now is under that blood. Now, if you die and you get out from under that blood, you're in trouble. Okay. But that's why we ought to feel bold to go out and tell people God loves you and Jesus died for you. Because it's true. But God is a person, you know. People fall in love, and then they fall out of love, and they hate each other. And God loves everybody right now, and God weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem, but he won't weep forever. Why do, why do we assume that because God is ultimately going to be angry at certain people, that he never cared about them for a while? The Bible indicates it's more complex than that. I don't think there's anything un-Calvinistic about saying that. Ultimately, God, there's, there's, there's the, the elect and there are those that are passed by. But right now, Jesus, the only reason these guys are alive is because they're under the blood. But you, you want to make sure that you move from here to being in Christ and being part of that firmament, which the church is part of that firmament now. But that's the wider meaning that he says here. It's not just a theological idea of averting the wrath of God. It's wider than that because the word he uses is the word for this cover. And that's Jesus is now this mediating place. No longer the sun, moon, and stars. But now Jesus is. And so in Christ, we worship in Christ. And if we decide we'll worship at 11 o'clock on Sunday, we decide that. The angels don't tell us to do it. The sun, moon, and stars don't tell us to do it. We in Christ, the elders in Christ decide 11 o'clock or 10.30 or Wednesday night, if they decide that we'll have a Christmas Eve festival that's voluntary, let's say, they can decide that. Decide which verse, which passages to read on Sunday. We decide in Christ because now what used to be sun, moon, and stars and angels is now Jesus and we are in Him. That's a change from old to new. Well, all right, that's not quite city. But it's part of it, you see. No longer elementary principles. And Galatians, you see, is not just theoretical stuff there. It's real stuff. We don't live by the almanac in the church. 
and most people don't live by the almanac. Just think about it a thousand years ago. 99.9% of the people on the surface of the earth lived by the almanac. They had to know the sun, moon, and stars. They had to know the seasons of the year. They had to know all that stuff so they could plant, so they could deal with their animals, or else they'd starve. Not anymore, 99.9% of the people in the world live that way. In the United States of America, very few people live that way. Very few. The rest of us live on a different calendar altogether. Look at our calendar. We no longer have lunar months. Our months are 30 and 31 days long. They have nothing to do with the moon. We're totally free from that. Now, the church as city is the heart of the new covenant. Okay? The covenant starts in the church and it spreads out into the world. This is why we're not quite Kyperians around here. I mean, if you want to look at a developed Christian civilization, you've got a church sphere and a society sphere and business and these things. But when you look at how things come into being, it starts in the church and it flows out. Okay, And so the church undergirds the church as a society and church as a worshiping community starts what is the nursery of the kingdom. It's the alpha form of the kingdom. It's not the omega form. Okay, We have to disciple the nations, but we start in the church. And the church, according to Acts 2, has all languages in one faith. Now that's bizarre. You know that even today the Koran is not allowed to be translated into any other language. So if you pick up a copy of the Koran in English, that's in violation of true law. Because the Koran has to stay. It's, it's not a sacred text. The Koran translated into English is just an idea of the Koran. As a sacred text, it only exists in Arabic. Okay, and, and that's really true of the Hebrew Bible as well. There was no permission given by God the Holy Spirit to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek before the coming of the New Testament. And so the translation that we have called the Septuagint is in places erroneous and in places is very much a paraphrase. And it's not entirely reliable because I think those guys that did it knew they didn't quite have permission to do it. So they had Methuselah living through the flood. And then when Job's wife says, curse God and die, she has a whole bunch of more choice things to say in the Septuagint in addition to that. And there are other things I think they deliberately stuck in there as a sign to any alert reader. Oh, this is to give the gist of the Old Testament. And it's a pretty good translation, but don't be counting on it. It's not the same as the sacred text. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and he speaks in every language except Hebrew. Now that's a sign to the Jews that the only way they're going to be saved is to go through the Gentile gate. And there's a lot of stuff you can say about that. You've got to go back to Abraham before he was circumcised to come into the kingdom. Okay, You've got to hear the gospel in any language but Hebrew. But the other thing it means is the Bible has the ability to be translated into every language of the world accurately. The Spirit guarantees that. And instead of saying everybody needs to learn Hebrew, although that's not a bad idea, the, the reverse is the case. In the church, there will be all languages, but one faith. The sin at the Tower of Babel was to say one lip, one religious confession, and one vocabulary, one set of words. And God said, uh-uh. I'll scatter you out. I want there to be lots of languages. Every language has its own unique slant on who Jesus is. That's why when you learn another language, the words don't quite exactly correspond. That's why when you try to read Dutch theology in English, you say, this is awfully kind of confusing, but Dutch people think it's so clear. <laughs> it's, and so often it's not clear when we read it. Maybe that's translation, but they have ways of writing and ways of saying things that don't strike us as right, but strike them as real profound. Well, okay, if I really knew Dutch, I'd probably be able to see Jesus that way too. You see, a million different ways. And throughout eternity, we'll be learning all these languages. And even today in the church, we sing music from many different cultures. We sing Lutheran hymns at this conference. We sing plain song. We sing Welsh songs. We sing uh, uh, German, Swedish uh, we could sing Latin American. We have over the years done lots of things. The, the hymnal is one of the most cosmopolitan, speaking in tongues places. Okay? And all of that music flowing up through history out of the temple music. 
believe it or not. In the church, then, we have this affirmation of city-ness with all these languages in one city. Second of all, in the book of Romans, you have Paul's argument that Jew and Gentile have to come together because God had killed the human race by cutting it in half in Genesis 17. By interposing circumcision, God had had... When you tear something in half, it's dead. And so you have one half of the human race is circumcised and the other half is not. Now God put all the death on the Jews. The Jews had to carry death for the life of the world. That's what uncleanness is. Only Jews, Hebrews, Israelites, Jews could become unclean. They carry this death and deal with it every year so that the Gentiles can live. But still, they're two different groups. Now, in the resurrection of Jesus, they're pulled together. The resurrection of Jesus has to mean that the distinction between Jew and Gentile is gone because these two dead parts are pulled up and put together again. Now in Romans, his whole discussion of the Jew and Gentile and how they relate to each other and help each other moves into his discussion of the strong and weak. You know, what is the book of Romans about? Is it an epistle about the strong and the weak? And the Jew and Gentile thing is an example? Or is it a, a, an epistle about the coming of the kingdom and to the Jew first and also to the Greek? That's the theme, and then he gives kind of an application to talk about the strong and the weak. Which is it? Well, yes. We don't have to answer that, all right? But certainly his discussion of the strong and the weak and how the weak serve the strong and the strong serve the weak, that is an amplification of how Jew and Gentile work. In the church, which one is strong? Well, the Jews are strong, man. We're the ones who are tough. We lived under the law. You know, we're the first in. We're the Marines, all right? Gentiles, flabby Gentiles. They didn't have to. They could eat pork, all this kind of stuff. They're weak. Now, we Gentiles, we're strong. You know, we're strong enough to be able to eat pork. These childish Jews, they had to have all these extra rules to keep them in line. Oh, it doesn't make any difference, you see. You have to be mutual to one another and let each esteem the other better than himself. How are Baptists better than us? They're better at evangelism. How are Pentecostals better than us? They're better at enthusiasm. How are Catholics better than us? They're better at works of charity. Okay. Reformed people need to think along these lines. How are Lutherans better than us? They got a whole lot better music than we do. All right? So, uh, you know that's true. Better beer? That's, that also is true. All right? So, you know. That's, that's what Paul's doing there. Okay, that's in the city. That's how people who are different get along with each other. As in Galatians, you know, got two separate communion tables going here. Paul explodes that the heart of the gospel is to be in the city and for all these different kinds of people to get along with each other in mutuality and not to be unmutual. Okay? So that's why it's so strong in Galatians. Justification, which is resurrection, means everybody's the same. So how, how diverse people can function by one anothering one another in this cosmopolitan body is the main concern in all the epistles. Okay? All the stuff in the Old Testament was written about how to get along with animals turns into how to get along with other people in the epistles. And that's important. This isn't just social thought. It's how Jesus' body manifests within itself. Okay. And by acting in this right way, the church patterns for society. So, what I have tried to say is there is a very real, creational, phenomenal change from land to city with the coming of the new covenant and the new creation. And if, if I'm right and the incarnation was in the works all along, probably that's the essential shift. Probably the human race would have prepared itself gradually over the centuries to the point where Jesus would be incarnated and bring about what we think of as city, to no longer under the angelic elementary principles, but now married to him, the marriage supper beginning in this full sense that happens in the New Testament, the New Covenant coming, that would be the thing that would come about even if we hadn't sinned. That's my belief. Uh, that's, that's what it seems to me is, is the right way to look at it. But whether I'm right about that or not, this is certainly what has happened. 
Okay. So let's not thin, thin this out and say it's merely an idea because it's a real cultural shift. And I, I think Rich intends to try to explore some of these ramifications. Or if he wasn't going to, he is now. <laughs> right? That's what you would So um, any questions or comments on this stuff? Uh-huh. Is, uh, when you talked about the Bible's given exercise and being mythologized, uh, in Islam... Seems like we still have all that superstition uh, in their teachings and those kinds yeah. of things. So, how would we apply this to them? Well, you see, I, the Bible is given to exorcise and demythologize, but it doesn't happen overnight. So, for instance, I'm familiar with the situation in Russia. When Vladimir brought Christianity to Russia, then it was laid over on top of a pre-existing folk religion. But the nature of orthodoxy is it doesn't disciple. <laughs> it disciples by having people come into church and stand in front of icons, but it doesn't do much to change daily life. Okay, so that even today, Russians have all kinds of little superstitious rituals. They have beliefs about the way wind works and the way the sun works and uh, avoiding certain kinds of sun and Oh boy, that's a dangerous wind if it goes around a corner. They have odd things that they do when people die that are still parts of underlying folk religion. And the same in Catholicism. I mean, why are there no 13th floors in skyscrapers in New York? Well, that has nothing to do with somebody needs to be exorcised and demythologized and go ahead and start having 13th floors. So things hang on. And that's why Protestantism is a more consistent and powerful technological form of civilization than Catholic, which is a more powerful form than Orthodoxy. And you look into these cultures, you see radical differences in the degree of discipleship uh, in these societies. Now, Islam is a new creation form in that it's a tribal religion with one idol at the center of it. But it's a huge international tribal religion. It all turns its head toward this meteorite in Mecca that fell out of the sky. So that, that could not have existed in the ancient world. That's, and underlying that, associated that with our all kinds of spirits and jinns and other things that they worry about. So yeah, there's a lot of it there. But even there, it's not what it would have been beforehand. You could not have had, and it's written in a book, a book that you know, reflects, you know, Aryan Christianity then gone to seed in, in what, uh, what's written there. So it's another form of sort of the secular humanist perversion of the gospel. It couldn't exist without the gospel coming first. Is that scratching where you are? Okay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, the question is, is the city bad in the Old Testament? Uh, ooh, I am way over my time. I'll answer that and we'll have to go on. Uh, Cain's city and Nimrod's city. Nimrod builds two cities. He builds uh, Assyria, uh, Nineveh, and the cities around it. And then he builds Babylon, which has four quarters. It's you got a kind of a f four different cities together, and then his second one is one city in four parts. It's kind of a, but all of those are premature cities. It's part of another theme in the Bible, which is that the pagans get there first. And you know, the, the first musicians is Jabal, the, the son of, uh, of, uh, of Lamech in Genesis 4. The first agriculturalist is his brother Jabal. The first metallurgist is Vulcan or Tubal-Cain. Uh, and the first city is built by Cain, but there are counterfeit cities. But the counterfeits come first. There's a large theme there. But there is no polemic against the city as such. Now, evangelicals get influenced by an existentialist writer named Jacques Ellul, who tries to make it out. He's another kind of an agrarian who thinks that city life and technology is just dangerous. And in reality, city life and technology is tough, but there are opportunities that they're a sign of being grown up to deal with these new and more difficult problems. They're not going to go away. No matter how much you complain about the Internet, it isn't going to go away. So you have to learn to deal with it, see. Uh, and so the, the city provides more challenges and is more fearful. 
than the countryside. But by the same token, it's inescapable, and and we're challenged to deal with it. So, yeah, it's, there's the the Old Testament doesn't say the city is bad. It says the city of man is bad. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.